Presbyterianism and the Eldership by James Henley Thornwell. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Apostle Paul, in his first epistle to the Thessalonian Christians, thus addresses them. And we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labour among you, and are over you in the Lord, and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. All commentators are agreed that the rulers of the church are the persons whom the apostle is here exhorting the Thessalonians to treat with the deference and respect which were due to their character and office. At the same time the passage, in the description of their functions which it furnishes, indicates the duties of the rulers themselves. They must labour, govern or preside, and admonish. It therefore affords a clear and decisive proof that the primitive church had a government of some sort, that the distinction was familiar and well understood between the rulers and the ruled. The early congregations were not societies in which there was no settled order, in which everything depended on the time and the occasion. They were, from the beginning, organised bodies with a definite polity. Other passages of the same sort may be appealed to. Remember them which have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God. This exhortation occurs in a letter at least ten years later than to the Thessalonian church, there is a special value in these incidental references, as showing that the facts were notorious and unquestionable. I purpose to give a brief exposition of our faith upon this whole subject. The term Presbyterian is primarily distinctive of our notions of church polity, and in this relation it has a wider and a narrower application. In its widest application it includes all those who deny that the government of the church is entrusted to an order of men higher than presbyters or elders, who, in other words, maintain the official parity of the church. In this sense, it is simply the opposite of prelatic or episcopalian and extends to all denominations who deny the divine appointment of diocesan bishops. Hence, it includes independents and even Methodists. All who affirm the official equality of the rulers of the church are essentially Presbyterian. In its narrower application, it embraces only those who place the government of the church in the hands of representative assemblies composed exclusively of presbyters or elders. This is its proper and definite use. Using the term in this sense, I propose first to state the principles of Presbyterian church government in general. 1. The first principle is that of the unity of the church. As the body of Christ, the church is one. The members of it may differ as to their functions, but they are one by virtue of their union to Christ their head. So far as the invisible church is concerned, this is clear. That church is the whole multitude which was conceived in the eternal purpose of redemption and given to Christ to be delivered from sin and death. As this church manifests itself, the whole number thus designated are regenerated and united to Christ. All are incorporated into him and must therefore constitute one organized whole, which is the holy Catholic church. But if the church as thus conceived, is one, the visible church, which is designed to call the invisible to union with Christ, must also be one. The relation between the two is so close that it is unwarrantable to predicate unity of the one and the want of unity of the other. The visible or professing church approaches perfection as it seeks to realize the invisible or spiritual. The two ought to coincide, and the purity of the outward is determined by its approximation to the inward. A church, therefore, which cannot realize a visible unity and thus aim to coincide with the invisible church is self-condemned, and any constitution which does not recognize this fact is convicted of being unscriptural. This principle of the unity of the church lies at the foundation of the Presbyterian polity, 
and its peculiarities are designed to bring this out and give it a formal expression it is singular that the only two bodies which claim to realize this unity are in the deadliest antagonism each charging the other with being antichrist they are the church of rome and the presbyterian church rome does in a certain sense give unity to the church she compacts all its parts there is no stronger outward representation of unity than is furnished in her system of government there is however this marked difference between the two cases the church of rome undertakes to exhibit the body in its unity with an earthly head to exhibit christ as well as his members the presbyterian church exhibits in visible unity on earth the body only and connects it with a heavenly head the bishop of rome claims to be the head of the church he alone who is in communion with him is a member of the church and consequently a member of christ now he must be either a real and true head or a symbolical and typical head if the former then as a body cannot have two real heads without being a monster the headship of christ is displaced if the latter then as the body must partake of the nature of its head the church is a symbolical and typical body and the reality of the church is destroyed two the second principle of the presbyterian system is that unity is realized by representative assemblies the government of the church is not entrusted to individuals nor to the mass of believers but to councils every judicial and legislative function is performed by courts alone government is not administered by a single individual that would be monarchy nor by a privileged class that would be oligarchy nor immediately by the people that would be democracy but it is administered by representative assemblies these constitute a bond which brings all the parts together into unity and gives the church the property of indefinite expansibility let us suppose that there is but one congregation of christ's people they meet and choose representatives these representatives assemble in parliament to deliberate in reference to the interests of the whole body this parliament would extend over the universal church for according to the supposition the whole church is in one congregation suppose now two congregations to exist they elect their representatives who meet in common the representative assembly now covers two congregations enlarge these suppositions and it will be perceived that the principle of representation is capable of embodying any number of believers whole continents may be made one body the principle is susceptible of application to the whole human race and may therefore embody the whole church on earth in one grand parliament this shows that there is no specific difference between our various representative assemblies the principle is the same in all the courts of our church there is but one church a set of congregations bound together by the nexus of one parliament each congregation has every element of the universal church and the universal church has no attribute which may not be found in each congregation there is no organic difference between the church session and the largest assembly all the courts recognize the unity of the whole body it is certainly a beautiful system the question may be asked how do the different parts of the church work together the whole church cannot meet in common and we deny that there is any visible head which exercises supreme authority over all the answer is that the principle of representation is the bond of union and the medium of common action our system differs from episcopacy which consists of a series of monarchies one diocese is under the control of a single man two dioceses are independent of each other the church is split up into a great number of provincial monarchies characterized by no visible unity 
the only principle upon which unity can be secured under this system is that which provides one visible head for the whole church under the congregational system each congregation is independent of all others it is worthy of note how all churches have practically acknowledged the representative feature of presbyterianism episcopacy for example has its general conventions in which in the attempt to realize unity the parliamentary principle is grafted upon the system congregationalism has its councils the existence of which is a tribute to the importance of the representative principle even the pope on occasions of great emergency calls councils to decide disputed questions we are but carrying out then a principle the practical necessity of which is recognized by all churches but which is inherent in the very nature of the presbyterian system alone three the third principle is that the elements which make up these representative assemblies are elders who are rulers chosen freely by the people the word presbyter or elder primarily denotes age secondarily authority but never without some qualifying epithet supreme authority it signifies an officer invested with delegated authority it expresses precisely the sort of power which belongs to rulers in the house of god christ is supreme and all other rulers are subordinate to him and derive their authority from him the presbyter acts under a prescribed constitution he has no supreme control but is simply an agent of christ through whom he dispenses his rule but none are permitted to exercise authority except those who are called by christ through the free choice of his people they must have the confidence of the people four the fourth principle is that the power is primarily in the body and is exercised through organized courts the society as a commonwealth possesses all these powers and capacities potentially and by election actually exercises them that is the commonwealth as such has all church power in it but develops that power organically by assigning men to the offices with which its exercise is connected this principle may be illustrated by the analogy of our corporeal system the life which resides potentially in it is manifested and developed into exercise through the bodily organism the church is a living body and its courts are the organized machinery for manifesting its life it deserves to be considered too that representation founded in the free choice of the people arises from the nature of church power the power is in the hands of none but the church she constitutes these orders and chooses these rulers any theory therefore which admits of the appointment of rulers except by the free acts of the church is evinced to be false the rulers must be elected by the church hence the assemblies which are composed of these rulers are the church the session the presbytery the synod the assembly are properly called the church as they manifest its living power so much for our system of government the brief time allotted has admitted of only a statement of the outline of its principles let it not be understood that in advocating these views we unchurch other evangelical denominations if the question be who are the church we would unhesitatingly say that we recognize all who are regenerated and justified and therefore united to christ as members of his church we cheerfully and cordially hold fellowship with all christ's people but the principles which have been presented lie at the foundation of the complete organization of the church of christ second i propose in the second place briefly to indicate the nature and duties of the office of the elder one the nature of the office it is clear that in the scriptures it is recognized under the term presbyter bishop and elder 
even advocates of apostolical succession concede bishops and presbyters to be one the primary notion of the elder's office is a delegated right to rule all who are elders exercise rule and all who exercise rule are elders but among elders who are distinguished by this generic attribute of ruling there is a clear distinction as to function first there are those who labour in the word and doctrine the scriptures recognise no order which simply preaches second there are rulers or governors simply a class coming directly from the people the two classes are the complement of each other and in the concerted deliberation and action of the two truth and wisdom are attained take as an illustration the government of england the parliament consists of two chambers and concurrent legislation is the result so in america all the states have two houses in their legislatures the senate is composed of able wise and sober men in the house you have popular representation through which the people are directly heard the two operate as checks upon each other one chamber was for a while tried in europe and democracy ruled to anarchy in like manner the presbyterian system provides senators in the preachers and popular representatives in the ruling elders they meet in one body and the result is a concurrent one in which action is reached that is removed from the rigour of impracticable theories the violence of passion and the fickleness of caprice the word elder denotes a ruler and nothing more but in the scriptures we find other functions superadded to the office such as teaching hence some have contended that the new testament elder is only a preacher against this hypothesis the following considerations are urged first the presumption arising from the use of the term second this presumption is increased by the nature of the allusions the polity of the church is nowhere minutely described but it is treated as a thing well known the reason is that the allusions occur in letters and that the form was no novelty it was an old familiar thing in a new relation that old thing was the synagogue and there the elder was a ruler and there were elders there who had nothing to do but to rule third the plurality of elders in the church fourth the express language of scripture one timothy five seventeen two the duties of the office in general these are to govern to rule to administer the discipline of god's house to this end elders possess first several power power to rebuke exhort comfort admonish in the exercise of individual influence second joint power power exercised in courts to deliberate and vote and to admit to exclude and to censure more particularly it is the duty of elders first to provide for the maintenance of gospel ordinances it is not enough for them barely to get a minister but to see that the work of the whole church is adequately discharged the present distressing vacancies are probably due in part to a failure in the proper performance of this department of duty ruling elders are men to quicken the pulse of spiritual life in our congregations and to confirm the obligation to carry forward the gospel at home and abroad second to pay great attention to the inspection of parishes and in order that this work should be compassed it is necessary that congregations should be divided into districts and that a certain section should be assigned to the special oversight of each ruling elder third to maintain the discipline of the church as well in the exercise of their several power in counselling admonishing and rebuking the flock as in that of their joint power in administering the censures of a court 
it may be added that it is the duty of ruling elders to encourage and sustain all legitimate efforts to extend the gospel throughout the world the church is partly asleep in the face of dying nations it is a solemn obligation resting upon elders to cooperate with courts ministers and people in diffusing the knowledge of christ's name and the inestimable blessings of his gospel to the farthest limits of the earth third it only remains very briefly to state the qualifications of the ruling elder these are one true godliness two good sense three tenderness these make an elder indeed we often mistake the qualities that are necessary to the efficiency of the office it is not learning so much or social position or outward advantages that are required give us godly men men understanding the gospel men courteous tender and possessed of the confidence of the people and in connection with the ministers of the word they will accomplish an incalculably great and blessed work end of presbyterianism and the eldership by james henley thornwell